Glad to hear. If you want to give some feedback to members of the board about our move and everything else, I'm sure they'll be glad to hear from you. Uh, my name is Austin Fennell, and um, the, um, the SACPAW event uh, will uh, last for our address for uh, half an hour, and then we'll have half an hour for lunch and um, half an hour for a question period. Um, the, um, the program is, uh, is recorded by Shaw TV, and um, they, you can hear there, also hear uh, the, the recordings on, uh, on uh, one of the, oh, CKXUFM, uh, Radio 88.3. You'll be able to also hear that. Um, we want to uh, thank the uh, um, various people who uh, make this possible. Uh, the Lethbridge Herald is good enough to send a reporter each time, a Great Plate Catering, um, and the, uh, provides the meal, and the University of Lethbridge is active in helping to uh, do the promotion of this. Uh, the meal is uh, $14, and there's a little dish on the table where to put it there, and I hope somebody will count that money to make sure that it's right and everybody pays. Um, if you're just going to have a cup of coffee, that's a couple of dollars. Um, what other announcements do I need to make here? Uh, oh yeah, be sure to turn your cell phone off. That's a real nuisance if that goes off during the course of an address. So uh, we hope that uh, you'll uh, turn that one off. Um, now, our subject today is one which uh, uh, many of you are familiar with and you followed with great interest. So. That will help the speaker. He won't have to explain some things. Uh, NAFTA is uh, going to be the subject matter. Uh, the topic is up on the screen. And uh, we're just going to hear something about the way in which that's unfolding. Um, our guest speaker, uh, Dr. Chris uh, Kukucha, uh, has a number of books to his credit. Uh, he's particularly interested in Canadian foreign policy. And he has also uh, shared in the editing of the Harper Era's uh, Canadian Foreign Policy, International Political Economy, and he's, he's shared in a third edition of the reading of Canadian Foreign Policy. Now, uh, Dr. Kukucha uh, is a political scientist at the University of Lethbridge, has done research at State University in New York, and is past president of the International Studies Association of Canada. I want you to welcome him now as he comes and speaks to us. Uh, thank you very much for the uh, warm welcome. Um, I've been warned not to stand away from the mic, so I'm going to stand right here and uh, talk as much as possible. Um, so I've been asked to talk about the Trump era and uh, the NAFTA negotiations, the renegotiations of the NAFTA. The argument I'm going to make today is actually that you can't understand the contemporary reality of the NAFTA negotiations unless you put it into a historical context, and you actually have to go back 70 years to start understanding. And once you get that sense, you'll realize that a lot of this is path-dependent, and a lot of the discussion around what is new in NAFTA isn't really new at all, and there's likely not going to be, well, I'll talk about possible outcomes uh, in a few minutes. So first of all, let's talk about the uh, history a little bit. Um, we live in a, an international trade regime that's been evolving for about 20, about 70 years, sorry, not 20. 
Um, starts with the Bretton Woods system at post-World War II. Uh, Bretton Woods was the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and the piece that was supposed to deal with trade was uh, going to be the International Trade Organization. The International Trade Organization, the ITO, didn't materialize because the U.S. Congress refused to endorse it. So instead, what we got was this thing called the GATT, uh, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. And the GATT was how international trade and the norms and rules around international trade evolved for almost, uh, well, two, two and a half decades before we saw any changes. So the first agreements were what are called first-generation trade agreements. Uh, and what a first-generation trade agreement is and what the GATT was, was tariffs. Um, tariffs are taxes on goods. Uh, when a good comes to the border, it is taxed if there's a tariff on it. So I always like to use Corona beer as an example. It doesn't, you can buy it for 25 cents in Mexico, but when it comes into the Canadian market, it's quite expensive because alcohol is one of those things we protect and we put a lot of tariffs on those, those products. So it gets very expensive to come into our market. So really what the GATT was designed to do was trying to lower tariffs amongst all of these uh, post-war economies. Uh, and there were five GATT rounds between 47 and 62. So there were five series of negotiations in, in a 20, about 20 year period, and it resulted in the reduction of about 60,000 tariffs in the global economy. So massive tariff reduction uh, on a number of key sectors. And what you have to remember though about that 20 years is it's a fairly narrow group of countries. Uh, it starts with 23 uh, post-war. By the time you get to 1962, there's 45 countries involved. Uh, but they're all developed capitalist countries, they all have very similar interests, uh, so the negotiations aren't that difficult in a lot of ways. So those are first generation trade agreements. Second generation trade agreements, though, start in the 60s. Um, and it was the sixth round of the GATT negotiations in 1964, which is known as the Kennedy Round. Again, still focusing on tariff reduction, uh, roughly $40 billion in world trade uh, affected by those tariffs. But the Kennedy round is important because it starts to introduce a new focus of a, a liberal trading order, and it's about rules. So now we're not just going to talk about tariffs anymore, we're going to talk about rules related to trade. And the Kennedy round's uh, uh, breakthrough on this was what was called an anti-dumping code. So dumping is when a company will dump product into a market to drive out competition. So you'll dump your product in at a very low price to try and drive out local producers. Uh, the Americans complain we do that with softwood lumber all the time. It's, we're always being accused of dumping our product into that market. So the Kennedy round came up with a code on anti-dumping. Namely, you shouldn't do it. So there's the first set of rules re related to trade practices, and that begins our second generation of trade agreements. It's no longer just tariffs. And all of this is going to be very important for understanding what's going on with NAFTA right now. The concept of first and second generation trade agreements is really at the core of, of a lot of what's going on with NAFTA right now. So the Kennedy round, uh, three years uh, to negotiate one particular set of rules on anti-dumping. So it took three years to negotiate that. Uh, and we now see GATT membership rising to 48 states. So the membership of the, the liberal trading order is getting larger. Uh, the next one isn't until 1973, it's, it's nine years later. It takes six years to negotiate. Why does it take six years to negotiate? Because there's a lot of new rules that are addressed in the GATT as a forum. So there's a lot of first generation stuff that continues, there's still a lot of tariff reductions. Uh, I believe it was $19 billion in world trade, still part of the Tokyo round. But with the Tokyo round you get a whole set of new rules. So now it's not just an anti-dumping code, 
you get rules on subsidies. Governments subsidize industries all the time. So the GATT was trying to come up with rules about why you should and shouldn't subsidize industries. Customs evaluation. Let's try and make sure all governments have similar rules on customs so that we can understand how our goods are going to go across borders. And what's really important about the Tokyo Round in 1979 is it introduces a dispute settlement body. So now if two countries are fighting over a trade issue, they can take it to the GATT as a dispute. So if you want to argue over softwood lumber or you want to argue over aluminum or blueberries or lobsters or pork, we fought great wars with the Americans over blueberries and pork in the past, you would go to the uh, GATT dispute panels and they would serve as a forum of settling those disputes, hopefully. What's also very significant about the Tokyo Round is you now get the GATT rising to membership of 102 states. So you have now a real mix of developed and developing economies, capitalist and, and emerging non-capitalist economies. It becomes a real mix of different states with different interests. And what we get with the Tokyo Round is a term called GATT a la carte. So what happens here is some countries agree to all of the stuff, other countries just agree to some of it, and you get this really sort of scattered uh, set of commitments depending on who you are and, and what uh, you're willing to do. Okay, the big one though, uh, and this is really what is setting the table for NAFTA and setting the table for the new NAFTA right now, is the Uruguay round. This was the last successful round of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. It took seven years to negotiate, 86 to 93. And this is what I would argue was a transformational agreement, uh, a comprehensive new transformational agreement. Uh, incredible new rules related to a wide range of trade practices. So we now get a complete agreement on trade and services. Uh, trade and services dwarfs trade and goods in the global economy. Trade and services, is, is, it's in not tangible trade, it's things that fly through the air, it's, it's media, it's telecommunications, it's those types of things. It's also tourism, it's labor mobility. Uh, we get a whole agreement around services with the Uruguay Round. Again, rules. Procurement, those are the things that governments buy and sell. Procurement was always something that was sort of off limits in terms of rule making in the international system. We now have an agreement on procurement. Intellectual property, investment. So there's a huge range of new rules set up under the Uruguay Round. That wasn't it though. You also see the way that trade uh, agreements are written changed. So not to get into too much detail here, but to understand a trade agreement, if you pick up a trade agreement, the language in it is gonna be either a positive list or a negative list. So positive lists are, are simply a country will only commit to a very specific range of commitments. I will only commit to X, Y, and Z. Everything else is out. But negative lists are the opposite. They're very liberalizing. The language of a negative list is I commit to liberalize everything. I will open my economy to everything except for very specific exclusions in my schedules. So in terms of liberalization, the fact that the Uruguay Round started adopting negative lists was very, very transformational in terms of how trade agreements were written. So if you pick up the Uruguay Round agreement, you'll still see positive lists, you'll see negative lists, and then you'll see parts of the agreement that are hybrids of both. So the, the agreement on services, for example, is a hybrid. So again, transformational change. You also see a lot of provisions for developing countries adopted with the Uruguay Round. So longer phase in periods. Uh, again, uh, more selection of what they, they commit to and what they don't commit to. You also see the creation of a brand new world organization for trade. It's the World Trade Organization. It's created as a byproduct of the Uruguay Round. 
and you also get a new dispute settlement process with the WTO as well. And most significantly, membership of the WTO uh, rises to 123 states by 1993. Today there's over 160 states that are members of the WTO. So this is a transformational agreement and really sets the table for everything that's going to happen afterwards. You might be interested to know that there is a Doha round of WTO negotiations. It is now in its 16th year. It started in 2001 and there's still no agreement. And the reason why will become clear hopefully in a, in a minute or two. Okay, so now we can talk about NAFTA. Why do we get NAFTA? Because NAFTA is right in the middle of the Uruguay round. NAFTA emerges as all of this other global negotiations are going on. We decide to negotiate first a bilateral agreement with the Americans, and then we negotiate a trilateral agreement with the Mexicans and the Americans. Why do we do that? Because the Uruguay round's taking too long. And there's certain things that we as countries agree on, the United States and Canada, and then, uh, and then Mexico, we agree to have a separate agreement move it forward faster than Uruguay and, and get our stuff moving faster before the other uh, negotiations are over. Now why that's important is because most of the language in, La in NAFTA is the exact same language that's in the Uruguay round. So it had already been negotiated, it was all sitting there on the table, it had been scrubbed by lawyers, it had all ready to go, but they couldn't get 123 countries to agree on it, so it was just sitting there. So all Canada and Mexico did, first with the Canada-US, uh, or Canada and the United States with the Canada-US agreement, took most of that language and put it into the free trade agreement with the United States. Then they took that language and put it into NAFTA. So when we talk about benchmark language, it's language that's already been negotiated, it's already scrubbed by lawyers, it's already precedent, uh, and it's stuff that most people have already agreed to. What else is significant about uh, NAFTA in 1994? More tariff reduction. So lots of first generation trade agreement stuff still there. Uh, we're reducing tariffs between our economies and we have more rules related to services, intellectual property, procurement, labor mobility, et cetera. One of the key things being discussed now with the new NAFTA had to do with automobiles in 1994. So in the Canada-US Free Trade Agreement, uh, we had rules of origin related to automobiles. So under the Canada-US Free Trade Agreement, we agreed that 50% of every car produced in Canada, the United States would come with goods or with parts from either Canada or the United States. That was the threshold. So that Chevy whatever that came off the line, 50% of that car had to be full of parts from Canada and the United States. That was the Canada-US Free Trade Agreement. In NAFTA, they bump it up to 62.5%. So now there is 62.5% of that vehicle has to have parts in it from either Canada, the United States, or Mexico. Now that's very important because what most people don't understand is since the 1960s, we've had a very integrated economy in, on automobiles. So supply chains, Things move across the border very easily and very quickly to build cars. Sometimes the car will move back several times in the process of being built across a border. That's a supply chain. So what NAFTA did was reinforce that supply chain, and we're going to get to that more with the new NAFTA in a few minutes here. Another controversial thing in 1994 with NAFTA was the introduction of what was called NAFTA Chapter 11. It was an investment provision that now allowed independent businesses to sue governments for damages if they felt that they lost investment opportunities in that country. So NAFTA Chapter 11 is quite controversial. Canada has been uh, the loser at several Chapter 11 uh, panels where we have paid foreign corporations millions of dollars in settlements for what the NAFTA dispute panel ruled was lost investment opportunities in Canada. So that was also a very controversial thing. You'll notice that's not part of the new NAFTA agenda right now. 
uh, which we'll get to in a second. And again, NAFTA, we see this ongoing trend with negative lists more liberalizing than before. Now, it doesn't end with NAFTA. There are s numerous post-NAFTA agreements. I'm not going to talk about a lot of them here, but you have to understand what happens after NAFTA to understand what's going on with the new NAFTA. So I'm just going to give you one specific example. Well, I'm going to give you two, actually. Um, but here's a re relatively recent agreement that Canada negotiated with Korea. Um, it was a, a, an agreement that took two prime ministers and, and seven or eight years to negotiate. Um, and really, when you look at it, it's a very straightforward agreement. Uh, you see first-generation trade issues involved, tariff reduction. So we reduce a lot of tariffs between Canada and Korea on things like wheat, beef, pork, seafood, minerals, natural gas. But other than that, that's really the transformative part of Korea. There's really nothing transformative about that agreement at all after that. All that happens in that agreement other than that are there are rules, there are discussions of rules in Korea, but it's all the same language that's in the WTO. Or it's all the same language that was in the U.S.-Korea agreement that was previously uh, negotiated uh, between those two countries. So again, benchmark language. It's where you take language that's already scrubbed by the lawyers, already in existing trade agreements, and you put it in a new agreement, maybe with some tinkering around the edges. And the other thing that you see with, uh, with Korea is Canada continues to exclude. There are certain sacred cows that we don't touch in trade negotiations that, we will, that are always off the table for Canada, and they were again for Korea as well. We don't touch alcohol. Provincial uh, liquor boards are not something that we will discuss. Uh, Subfederal procurement, which is provincial and territorial procurement, what those governments will buy and sell, and agricultural supply management, uh, dairy and poultry. Those are always the things that we refuse to talk about, and lo and behold, we don't talk about them in Canada and Korea. Why is that important? Because the Korea agreement represents pretty much every other bilateral trade agreement we've rep negotiated during the Harper years, and really for the Cretchen years, too. So if you go onto the Government of Canada web, web page, we have bilateral agreements with uh, 13 other countries right now, probably. They all look almost identical to the Korea agreement. You'll reduce tariffs, borrow a bunch of language that exists somewhere else, and exclude the things that we always exclude. That's really what our, our practice of international trade is. So again, when we get to the new NAFTA, there's a pattern here. I mean, it's, it's a fairly predictable pattern that, that emerges, uh, and, that, and that's really what we need to see here. Okay, so let's talk about the big one that we just negotiated with Europe, uh, because it's often called a comprehensive agreement. It's also comp often compared to the Uruguay round in terms of it being transformational. Well, it is and it isn't, uh, so I'll explain what that agreement is. Um, it took three different governments to negotiate that agreement. The Cretchen government negotiated with Europe, the Harper government negotiated with Europe, and finally the Trudeau government negotiated. It took eight years to get our agreement with CETA. And again, why is that important? Again, the pattern, seven years, six years, eight years to get agreements. We're trying to negotiate a NAFTA right now in less than a year, in six months. Uh, it, it's very path dependent. Because of that fact, there's very limited things that they can do. So what is in the CETA? Tariff and quota reduction, first generation trade agreements, along the same things we're always looking for. The stuff that we sell well, the stuff that we have a comparative advantage in. Wheat, beef, pork seafood, automobiles. Uh, these are the things that are in CETA. Um, the one significant thing that's in CETA, and this is transformational, is procurement. 
We, for the first time, see provinces and territories binded to an international agreement, bound to an international agreement related to procurement. Uh, and subsequently, we're going to see uh, some other things happen with that as well. Why do we do that? Why suddenly are provincial governments ready to uh, allow themselves to be competitive in the international marketplace? Because the province of Quebec sees them selling hydroelectricity to Europe. They see themselves as being a competitive uh, market player in the electricity uh, market in Europe and having huge opportunities there. So Quebec wants it, so all of a sudden the other provinces now are, are in. Because other provinces, Manitoba wants it for the same reason. You know, uh, other provinces see advantages as well. So if you want to know what's transformative about CETA, that's what it is. It's procurement. And just the fact that territories and provinces are now part of it. Um, the rest of CETA, though, that eight-year agreement that it took to negotiate, the language is benchmark language. It's modified benchmark language that's already in all the other agreements. So there's some tinkering around the edges. There's some changes. But for the most part, it's the same language that's in services, labor, mobility, and other agreements with some minor transformations. So, and what else do we exclude? The usual stuff. We don't touch provincial liquor boards. We don't touch supply management. They're off the table. So what we get here, and CETA is kind of held up as the model of new progressive trade agreements. Well, it's a very incremental progress towards liberalization. There's not that much change in CETA at all, other than reduced tariffs and certain things related to cheese and some other stuff, and also sub-federal procurement. But other than that, not much. So asymmetrical liberalization, where you're seeing small change with some big movements in some parts, i.e. procurement, but really just an extension of second generation trade agreements uh, that have been in place for a while. All right, now we can talk about NAFTA. Uh, the worst trade deal in US history, according to Donald Trump, um, and it's not, uh, because we already know it's just like every other trade agreement in, in history. Uh, it follows a very predictable pattern of things. So what does the United States want from us with NAFTA, the new NAFTA? They want a lot. They want us to put Canadian supply management on the table. They want us to negotiate uh, tariffs and quotas on poultry, dairy, and eggs, a non-starter for the Canadian government in any other negotiation. They also want to change government procurement, all the stuff that we just made advances towards in liberalizing, the Americans want to roll it back. They want to take a lot of that off the table and bring in a matching system for procurement. So literally, on a dollar-per-dollar dollar basis, if the federal government uh, is uh, buying something from the American market for X number of dollars, then the, the deal that the Trump government wants is that there has to be an equal number of dollars going back the other way. So they want it matched dollar-for-dollar dollar, uh, in terms of procurement. Now, that's not it for procurement. They also want to uh, bring in stronger Buy American provisions which is just going to exclude Canadian companies from bidding on a large number of American contracts. So if you want to build a bridge, uh, you won't be able to use Canadian steel. You'll be excluded from bidding on that contract. Buy American isn't new. Uh, it's it's, it's a, something that's well entrenched in the U.S. system, but they want to uh, make it even stronger under the new NAFTA. And automobiles. And I see my slide here is, is run out. I'll have to read the stuff on the bottom. but. Uh, there's a couple of things below automobiles. So what do they want to do with automobiles? They want to raise the level of content of the automobile from 62.5% under NAFTA to up to 85%. So that Chevy whatever suburban coming off the line now will have to have 85% or the low end of the threshold they're talking about is 75% of parts from either Mexico, Canada, or the United States. Now, the, the wrinkle there that on the surface that doesn't look bad for Canada, 
But the wrinkle there is that the United States is asking that 50% of that 75 or 80%, so two-thirds of that 75 to 80%, has to come from the United States. So it's not something that all countries from NAFTA will benefit from. The United States will eat up 50% of that uh, 75 to 80%, 85% content. Further, they also want 35% of that 75 to 85%. So on top of the 50%, they want another 35%, and my math's not good here, but I think we're getting pretty close to 85%. Um, they want it coming from factories that pay $15 to $17 an hour for labor, which immediately excludes all Mexican factories uh, because they pay much lower than that. So uh, the table is tilted pretty, pretty strongly to the Americans on automobiles. A couple other things <clears throat> on the slide that you can't quite see there. Um, the thing that was in the news yesterday, uh, that apparently very heated words were exchanged between uh, ministers at the table yesterday on the sunset clause. The Americans want a five-year sunset clause, which basically will renegotiate NAFTA every five years. We'll throw it back on the table and do it all over again every five years. That's what the Americans want. Canada is dead set against that because um, we like stability. Um, and also, the Americans are trying to eliminate uh, some of the dispute panels that are associated with NAFTA, Chapter 19 specifically, not Chapter 11. The Americans are quite happy with Chapter 11 because most of the time the Americans don't lose Chapter 11 panels. Okay. So uh, that's what's on the table. On top of all of that, we get all the other stuff that's going on, countervailing duties on Canadian softwood lumber, newsprint, solar panels, uh, the global U.S. trade war on aluminum and steel, Canada right now is exempted from that, but only until the end of May. Uh, there's a time limit on that. Canada's threats to retaliate if the U.S. retaliates against us. But the big one here is the midterm elections in the United States, and most importantly, the Mexican presidential elections coming up very quickly. That's going to have a big impact on NAFTA. So where are we with NAFTA negotiations? We haven't moved very much at all. Six of 33 chapters have been negotiated. That's the easy stuff. That's all the benchmark language we agree on. So we've done six of 33. We've moved on automobiles. All the rest of it, there is not a lot of progress. So minimal movement on 25 plus chapters of NAFTA. So what does that mean? There's three scenarios. Will Trump rip up NAFTA? No, that's not going to happen. Um, there, it benefits way too many sectors of the US economy. There's congressional and state support for NAFTA across party lines, Democrats and Republicans. Trump has even stopped talking about this for the most part. There could be a Twitter storm at some point coming. I don't know, but for the most part, it's not something that he's discussing. Um, and we now see the U.S. using its tax cut process and uh, the global war on steel to try and accomplish what it really wants, and that's creating U.S. jobs. Second, the second possibility, what we call zombie NAFTA, where it's just the status quo, and we'll just keep rolling along with what we have. That's a, very, that's a very likely outcome of what's going on here. Um, because the US Congress has a lot of power on where we move forward. With Na Trump can't just terminate NAFTA. Congress is very deeply entrenched in the process. Uh, and also the process of whether or not we can even keep talking about NAFTA. Trump has to go and ask Congress for permission. It's called Trade Promotion Authority. And that's expiring pretty quickly uh, to even keep talking about these things. So, and if Trump does do it unilaterally, there will almost certainly be a Supreme Court challenge. Uh, and uh, again, this will put us in zombie mode where it will just sort of limp along. The biggest issue, though, is the presidential elections in Mexico. If there's not a deal by then, uh, there won't be a deal. 
Uh, it will simply be uh, the status quo until all those processes are worked out. We'll get to start all over again. A comprehensive agreement, well, I'm not going to go over this slide. We're running a little short of time, but uh, I've talked a little bit about what comp comprehensive and transformational change looks like uh, with the Uruguay round and some previous agreements. To the long and short of it here is there's nothing suggesting we're about to enter a third generation of trade agreements that is comprehensive. It's the same old pattern. Tariffs, reduce tariffs, adopt old existing language, and protect the stuff that we want to protect. So if we want to talk about a comprehensive agreement with NAFTA, it's not going to happen. Uh, if we get an agreement at all, let's say we do get an agreement in the next two weeks or three weeks, it will be a very loose agreement in principle, very short on specifics. Uh, you'll have five, six issues that we all agree on already. That's the chapters that are already negotiated. There'll probably be something on automobiles and anything else. I heard uh, our trade minister, our foreign affairs minister yesterday, sorry, talking about a modernized NAFTA. Well, what does that mean? Modernized NAFTA just means you're going to take the old benchmark language and modernize it, i.e. you're going to tweak it a little bit and call it a new NAFTA. Well, it's not going to be new at all. It's going to be the same stuff that's been around for a long time. Uh, and that's what the modernized one will look at. I think this is possible, a possibility simply because um, Trump needs a political win. This is a potential easy one for him. The speed of negotiations means that it won't be comprehensive, it'll be limited, so it's only going to be a small number of things they need to agree on. And quite frankly, and this is what people forget, is that the United States needs Canada right now. They need our market. The United States is in the process of declaring war on the rest of the global economy. China and specifically. Uh, and the United States can't uh, alienate all of its trading partners and we're an important one. So why is it going to be a second generation agreement, if anything at all? Again, there's 70 years of evidence to suggest that that's where we're going, if we're going anywhere. Um, there's no markers that suggest we're about to enter a third generation of transformative trade agreements with the new NAFTA. And if you add comprehensive to the title, it doesn't mean it's comprehensive. So calling the European agreement a comprehensive agreement uh, is a bit misleading. And the same if they call this new agreement comprehensive or the Trans-Pacific Partnership comprehensive, it's misleading when you get into the, devil, the, the details of it. And finally, understand that, there, and this is my last slide, understand that there's a lot of reasons why Canada doesn't want a comprehensive agreement because of our own internal practices. We are not sitting at that table trying to re revolutionize the international trade regime. Canadian federalism limits what we can do. We have to get 10 provinces and three territories to agree on a lot of this stuff. Uh, provinces are actually at the negotiations. Provinces were at the table with the Europeans negotiating. It's a huge barrier to what we can do internationally. We have our own internal trade regime. We have a series of internal trade agreements within Canada, as we all know with the recent Supreme Court ruling uh, on beer in New Brunswick. Uh, it's very hard for us to move goods from province to province let alone internationally. So those limit what we can negotiate internationally as well. We have, uh, in, in the, uh, we have national ones, uh, the Agreement on Internal Trade, it's now the Canadian Free Trade Agreement, but we also have regional ones. In Western Canada, we have the New West Partnership Trade Agreement, which is British Columbia, Alberta, uh, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. Again, the rules are different in all these agreements. We have a history of industrial policy in this country. We like to subsidize industries. Bombardier is a classic example of that. Governments love to bail out industries and support them. That limits what we can negotiate at the international table. Uh, regional political defensive interests like supply management, which I've talked about already, provincial marketing um, liquor boards, also limits what we can talk about internationally. 
bureaucratic capacity. We don't have a lot of people with the expertise to negotiate these things, especially in the provinces. And finally, we have very active uh, sectoral groups in Canada pushing uh, specific agendas. The chicken farmers of Canada, you don't want to pick a fight with the chicken farmers of Canada. They're, they're, they, they mean business. But in, in intellectual property, it's pharmaceutical industry, same thing. So the, the, what I'll leave you with for Canada's role in all this, uh, Michael Hart was the chief negotiator of the Canada-US uh, Free Trade Agreement for Canada. And he defines Canada's position at these negotiations in one word. And it's classic, it sums it all up. We're chiselers. We chisel away at our defensive interests. We don't let people protect what we want to, or to uh, liberalize what we want to protect. So we're going to chisel those people away and keep them away from our supply management and keep them away from our liquor boards. Um, but it's also an offensive interest too. It might take us 20 years, but we're going to bring down your tariff barriers when it comes to pork or beef or grain or anything that we have a comparative advantage to. You know, with, it might take six or seven years of negotiations, but we're going to chisel away until the bitter end. So I'll leave you with that. I, I know we have Q&A coming up afterwards, uh, so thank you very much.